Good morning, church family. Before we um, turn in our, well, actually, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I was just going to say, before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5, begins in Matthew 5, um, I want us to just consider once more the scripture we read together when we first began this morning, the word of God to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. God says, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. God's people knew that a day was coming when his great name, which the world profaned still today, uh, which they themselves had profaned, God's great name will be vindicated among the nations through his people. Well, how is that going to happen? How is God's great name going to be vindicated, sanctified through his people? Well, we could keep reading in Ezekiel, as most of you know, or we could ask his uh, fellow prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." God intends to sanctify, to exalt, to, to, to vindicate his great name, his holy name in all the earth, among the nations, through his people. And the scripture says he is doing this through his new covenant. The new covenant is, is a covenant in which God's law, uh, once written on those stone tablets, uh, is now written on the very hearts and minds of God's people, redeemed people. This, we know that phrase, new covenant, Christians are new covenant people, amen? Here's where we're going with this. God's people know and love God's law. Their lives vindicate God's holy name on the earth as they live in obedience to his law. Says who? Says the Lord God. This is the prophecy that you and I are meant to be very attentive to. God is vindicating his name, sanctifying his name among the nations through his people. How is he doing that? As his redeemed people live in obedience to his law. And so, so the whole notion uh, that is common today that, that grace people, are you a grace person? Boy, I am. Praise God. But the notion that grace people don't 
care about God's law, that the, that the law has been completely set aside for the believer and, in fact, is unbiblical. It is an eisegesis of the text, not an exegesis of the biblical text. What do I mean by that? Eisegesis just means I take an idea that I really like and I find a verse that supports that. In fact, I could find a whole bunch of them. And I can make the Bible say whatever I want it to say, right? Heaven forbid. God forbid that. Let's just let the word of God speak for God himself. As we hear the words of King Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on four words. Do not think that. Because it's possible that God the Holy Spirit has for some of us here this morning a very important message that begins with, do not think that. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Jesus makes very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that God's people do not somehow disregard his law as they enter the kingdom of heaven. We don't set aside obedience to God's law, nullify the law because of faith in Christ. What does the Bible teach from cover to cover? We exalt God's name by living out God's law with a new heart that loves God. Here's the thing. God's grace and God's law are not enemies. They're friends. They get along just fine. And in fact, they are partners in your sanctification, my sanctification, both vital to God's plan to make his name great through the lives of his people. Now, I don't want you to take, are you with me? I don't want you to take my word for it. Let's just hear the words of our Savior Jesus, verse 17 of Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, or maybe this is your, your first um, uh, listen to our time in the Sermon on the Mount, your timing is absolutely perfect. Uh, because we've just completed looking at the introduction, the preface to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the similitudes um, in verses 1 through 16 of Matthew 5. Now we're in the main thrust of Jesus' kingdom message. From here on out, this is all about life in the kingdom of heaven. And remember, Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus, God's anointed king. King Jesus has come and he's calling sinful people to himself. A people born in spiritual darkness have, have seen a great light, Jesus Christ. And the king now calls his people to allegiance to him through repentance and faith. 
Follow me, he says to his own. And it's very possible you're here this morning and that's, that's your takeaway. Perhaps today is the day you need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ and follow him. We'll come back to that. But now in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus begins to describe what it actually looks like to follow him. You and I don't decide that for ourselves. He shows us what it is to follow him. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about life in the kingdom. What do God's kingdom people live like? And I want us to just notice straight up that the Christian life demands a right relationship with God's law. The Christian life demands a right relationship with God's law. The phrase law in the prophets refers to the Torah, what what you and I would call our Old Testament. And King Jesus makes very clear here that the Torah, your, your Old Testament, is essential to your understanding life in the kingdom of heaven. And so the notion that some believers have, uh, not you, I'm talking about the people in the next service, uh, that the Old Testament, you know, we're grace people, we just, we just don't need the Old Testament anymore. That's not what Jesus taught. And if you've been led to believe that in the Old Testament, God used to be uh, really stuck on rules. He was angry all the time. Uh, but in the New Testament, he is kinder and gentler. And, and, he, and he doesn't care that much about his law anymore. Um, can we just agree that that's not biblical? We need to throw that idea away. You say, well, it's really common. I know it's common, really, to be wrong. That's, that's no surprise. I mean, the fact that something is common, my goodness. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Don't even entertain the fleeting notion, Jesus says, that the self-disclosure of God through his word, through his law, has been destroyed or abolished. The Greek word for destroy there, some of your Bibles, I, I think, doesn't the ESV say abolish? Yeah. Um, it means to dissolve or to disunite. And, and how foreign to Jesus' teaching is today's notion that the Christian is divorced from the law of God, that, that, that the gospel has annulled the marriage between the people of God and the law of God. God's law is his self-disclosure. It is the revelation of God's nature to his people. The law describes those communicable attributes of God that you and I are enabled to live as new covenant people. And the law is God's best for people made in his image. Do you ever think of God's law that way? God saying with a tender heart, not as a killjoy, but with a tender heart, this is the best life I have for you as my image bearer. So God has not changed. His law has not changed. And, and so listen, if your gospel dissolves the relationship between following Jesus and obeying God's law, you have the wrong gospel. That's a false gospel. The gospel of grace does not disunite God's people 
from God's law. Now why why is this so critical? Because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will deal with the right understanding of the law of God. And so Jesus begins his teaching of people who in his day had a wrong understanding of the law, just as people do today with these words, do not think that, do not think that. Now, why would anybody think that? Well, in Jesus' day, people saw him hanging out with sinners, didn't they? I mean, the Pharisees never did that, hanging out with sinners. Those tax collectors and sinners were, were untouchable to them. People saw Jesus moving toward lepers, even though the culture believed if you had leprosy, that obviously you weren't living right. People saw Jesus talking to women. Women who were not even Jewish. The scribes and the Pharisees never did that. They would never condescend themselves that way. And then the people saw Jesus doing all of this stuff. Has this radical Jesus of Nazareth come to do away with God's law? No, no. Jesus lived out the very heart of God's law for all to see. And all who saw had such a corrupt understanding of the law of God, they didn't recognize it when they saw it. The Pharisees, had this entire complex system of ridiculous man-made rules developed to fence in God's people rather than liberate them to live as God's image bearers. Incredibly, as many of you know, the scribes and the Pharisees had 613 different uh, regulations to make sure people didn't break the Ten Commandments. It didn't work. In fact, their legalism produced hypocrisy. And how many of you know legalism still does that today? It always produces hypocrisy. Why? Because you cannot keep God's law perfectly, let alone all the stuff you add to it. You cannot be saved by keeping God's law. In fact, the scripture says you've already failed to do so. We were, every one of us, born by nature, unable to keep God's law and frankly not caring about it really. But the problem is not with the law, is it? The problem is with the heart of people made in God's image. And the problem still today is with the heart of people made in God's image. That's why we need new covenant hearts that love God. And love his law. Well, what about today? Why would anybody think today that Jesus came to get rid of the law? We don't have, I guess we do have legalism still today, don't we? Of course we do. Oh, we must really have it, right? (laughs) Don't play cards. Don't chew tobacco. Don't hang out with girls who do, right? I mean, everybody knows a legalist really well, probably. But much, much more common in our day is legalism's ugly twin, license. License. 
People today insist that Jesus got rid of the law because they misunderstand or contort the gospel of grace. Why does that appeal to sinful man so much? Because sinful man loves the idea that he can be saved from hell's condemnation and not actually love or care about God. Many professing Christians today mistakenly believe the grace of God in salvation is a freedom from the law itself. That is not so. And so when Paul says to the Romans, you are not under the law but under grace, he's not saying that God's law is bad, irrelevant, uh, unnecessary. He's saying God's law cannot save you. It can only condemn you. How many grace people today are glad that you're not under condemnation as one who is in Christ? We don't even look at the law of God that way. Just for the sake of clarity, though, let's just look at the we're not under law but under grace passage in its context. Romans 6, 14 and 15. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Now, what is Paul saying? God's moral law is timeless and, and it's eternal. And, and it's most certainly relevant and applicable to us today, not as a means of salvation, as a blueprint for how we live as saved people. Are you with me? Some of you. God's law is not a means of salvation. It's a blueprint for the way saved people live. If you're here this morning thinking that saving grace means that you just go out and live however you want because you're a grace person, I don't, I don't think a saved person would think that way. But if, if you did, please just know that you're wrong that's, that's a false gospel. And, and as you share that false gospel and live that false gospel out in the world, you are misrepresenting the nature of God to the world. Again, not you. I'm talking about the people in the other service. Don't take it from me. Take it from the amazing grace guy. Take it from, from John Newton. Here's what the author of that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, says, he says, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. How interesting. Two really big religious mistakes we'll keep bumping into as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and so I'm just going to introduce us to them today. I've already mentioned both. Legalism and then something called antinomianism. Um, anti meaning against, right? Nome meaning law, against law. Um, the, the gospel life, life in the kingdom, Jesus will say in this very sermon, is a, is a narrow road. Okay? It's a narrow road. We'll get to that in Matthew chapter 7. And, and you stay on the gospel path. You stay on the gospel path and, and, and you don't fall down into the deep pit of legalism on one side and the just as deep pit of license on the other side. 
So let's just look over the edges for a minute of the, of, of the gospel path and, and see what's down there. Legalism on one side, that is the, the pharisaical notion that you're made right with God by keeping all of his rules. That's impossible. So you, but you try really hard to appear that way to others, don't you? The legalist cares an awful lot about appearances. Life has to be managed so that everybody else thinks that you're a really good rule keeper. But the reality is what? You're not. And the reality, furthermore, is what else? You don't really want to be. Antinomianism against law is, is, is the, the common heresy of our day. And it's a big reason that the world can look at the professing church. I'm using my terms carefully today. The professing church, I, I don't really see what the difference is. Well, the world has every right to say that to those who identify with Christ and toss the law out in the garbage because they're grace people. That is not the gospel. We just read in scripture that God's um, prophetic promise that he is fulfilling yet today in real time is that he is going to sanctify his great name among the nations through his people. How's that going to work? He's, he's given a new covenant. We're new covenant people as Christians. So when Christians, uh, I, I just, I read ahead, I recommend that, I read ahead a little bit, it, when Christians kill their babies and ditch their spouses and get addicted to pornography and, and hate their enemies, what, what enemies? Well, those, the pot-smoking Democrats, right? We, people think that way. Just like the world does, God's great name is not vindicated among the nations. It's tarnished. It's disrespected. It's dishonored. But when believers walk in the spirit, speaking to the people in this service now, uh, when, when, when they enjoy God's best for his people, reflected in his law, God's name is exalted among the nations. So the true gospel, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, is, is the narrow way that keeps you from falling into the, 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 the pits on either side of, of legalism or license. You still with me? For real? You just saying that to get through? I'm on to you. How narrow is the gospel way? It's as narrow as the cross of Jesus. Don't miss that. How narrow is the gospel way? Think of the cross. Are you a lawbreaker? The correct answer is yes. Then you look to the one and only man who is God, who lived out God's law perfectly and then offered himself as a substitute for you before God. You look at his perfect life and you hunger for that righteousness that you do not have in yourself. And by faith in Christ, that righteousness is credited to you. This is the scandal of the gospel. A righteousness you don't have, a perfect righteousness credited to you through the work of Christ by faith alone. What grace 
God lavishes upon his people. And then you look to his sacrificial death. Why? Because on that cross, Jesus took the judgment, the condemnation that you deserve as a lawbreaker. Jesus took your hell that you might have his kingdom of heaven. So you look to Jesus. I I wonder if you're here this morning still needing to repent and believe upon Christ. Don't delay. The king has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's great name will be vindicated among the nations through his people. And judgment is coming. Turn to Christ. So the gospel that sets God's people free from the law's penalty, anybody set free from the law's penalty? Praise God. Also sets us free to live out God's law for our benefit and as a witness to others. And so Jesus will begin to unfold for these people listening to him so intently on a hillside in Galilee how God's name is to be vindicated among the nations as as his nature, his holiness is lived out by his people. You think, well, what does that look like? What does it look like? Well, it looks like the law of God lived out in humanity for his glory. In other words, it looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Specifically, though, in Matthew 5, The king's people, the new covenant people, are described as those who value life as God does. They're not murderers at heart, verses 21 through 26. I'm not making this up. I'm not freelancing here. Just look at your Bible. Christians value marriage as God does, and they guard sexual intimacy as a blessing within marriage. They're not adulterers at heart, verses 27 through 30. And Christians are not those who easily discard marriage. They're they're not always looking for the loophole when a marriage is difficult or some new secular counseling trick comes along, verses 31 through 32. These are the words of Jesus. This is what it is to be salt and light in the world. This, This is life in the kingdom, the kingdom that is breaking into humanity now in the gospel. And you say, well, I, I don't know about that. I've just never really thought. Well, let's start with the f- first four words here. Do not think that. Do not think that. Let's just put ourselves in the sandals of, of, of Jesus' first hearers. Common people. No kings and army generals and and uh, rock stars and none of that, just just common people, common Galileans, Jewish men and women who, who knew their Old Testament better than we do, probably, many of them. And we're challenged by Jesus' words. <laughs> they actually would have been refreshed by Jesus' words. Now just think about this. Jesus could not have been their Messiah if he had come to do away with the law of God. Why? Because they knew their Bible. That's why. 
This crowd of Galileans expected a Messiah who loved the law of God. They expected a Messiah who would lead them in a kingdom of righteousness governed by the law of God. And by the way, this was and still is the promise of the law and the prophets. And you know from the context of verses 17 through 20, Jesus is is honing in on the commandments, the the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Listen to God's own description of Israel's Messiah, the King. This is from Isaiah 42. God says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Let me, let me just stop there for a moment. If you're here this morning and the weight of God's law is something you're feeling right now and you're looking to Christ as your refuge, your law keeper, uh, the one who took your condemnation, uh, then rejoice as you cling to him. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty bruised right now. A bruised reed he will not break. Man, some days there's just a little flame of faith. That just, I mean, it's just smoking. A smoking flax he will not quench. What will he do? He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. This is the prophecy we are still waiting to have fulfilled in its fullness. This is a prophecy that is underway now. God's law will be the universal rule for his perfect image bearers. Look at verse 17. We're making tremendous progress, aren't we? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Circle the word fulfill in your friend's Bible so they don't forget this. We'll keep coming back to it. It, it, it means to, to perform in its entirety. Um, but, it, but if we just let Scripture interpret Scripture, you'll remember we've actually seen the word fulfill or fulfilled, uh, I think, five times already in Matthew's Gospel always referring to Jesus bringing into reality something that God has said he's going to do. Uh, The the king's virgin birth, his his name, Emmanuel, God with us, his flight to Egypt and then return to Galilee, Uh, his birth in Bethlehem, Herod killing all those babies in, in Judah, Um, Jesus' family settling in in Nazareth, his unveiling in Galilee as light to the world in this very Sermon on the Mount. All of these things happened, Matthew has told us, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. And so Jesus is realizing he's bringing into reality a promise God had made to his people. So so when God says, hey, I'm I'm going to sanctify, I'm going to vindicate my great name among the nations through my redeemed people, do you think he's going to do that? 
Yeah. He's doing it even now. But how, how refreshing these words would have been to Jesus' first listeners. They knew God's promised Messiah was a king who would love and obey God's law, not dissolve it, not add to it, and certainly not tell them to blow it off while singing of his grace. Look at verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Listen, when when the king says assuredly or amen, I say to you, that's our cue, isn't it? To, to, To quiet down and sit up straight and pay attention to what he has to say. The king is speaking. And what he's about to say is needful, is necessary for this life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom, as it turns out, requires a right understanding and a right right relationship with the law of God. Till heaven and earth pass away. When when is that? When When will heaven and earth pass away? Has that happened? I don't think so. Um... That's a a euphemism for the new heaven and the new earth, isn't it? Listen to Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And you say, well, that's the Old Testament. Okay, Revelation 21. John the Apostle says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away so in the eternal state there's no need for the law to be written down in a a book so to speak it will have become superfluous superfluous uh, because God's law will reside in its entirety in the hearts of his people wow what an amazing future we have to look forward to what will that be like do you suppose Will it be like the first Adam before the fall? Yeah. But I think we could even say better than that. Why? Because it'll be more like the second Adam who never fell. Jesus never in his humanity transgressed the law of God, not in thought, not in deed. He never did anything that didn't reflect a perfect love for the law of God. Just think about this. Today... A human king named Jesus reigns from heaven. He is perfect. And one day, the scripture says, you who are his followers will see him as he is and be like him. That's the kingdom of heaven that's coming to this earth in the gospel. And you say, well, what about now? Until then, what? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what do we do? Um, Jesus says one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The, the word jot, the Greek word is iota. We, we know that word iota. We even have that in our language, don't we? I, I don't care one iota for spinach or kale or any of its friends. And you, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You know, if, you, if you're into, you know, do people still write in cursive? I think they do. But, but in handwriting, the, the, you know, the serif, 
of a letter. That's, that's the, the tittle, the, the smallest stroke of the pen uh, to, to, to write the Hebrew alphabet, like, like dotting an I in English. Jesus is saying emphatically, not a single bit of this law of God is to be disregarded until it is all fulfilled. Why? Because the law is good. The law is a reflection of God's holy nature. The law is a blueprint for how God's image bearers live. And the law is the very best life that God's people can have. Are you listening still? So how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, certainly in his humanity, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus came to this earth and perfectly lived out God's moral law. When Adam broke the law, God created Adam and Eve as his image bearers. He said, you, 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 just, you just live in the joy of fellowship with me. You just stay in the boundaries of my best for you. And, and that covenant of works was, was pretty short-lived, wasn't it? Adam disobeyed. And in Adam, we who are born in Adam are born with a spirit of disobedience. We, we inherited the, the, the legal penalty from Adam of separation from God's goodness. Our inheritance by nature is God's wrath. And Christ must pay that penalty for you or you must pay that penalty yourself. That's why hell is eternal. God is infinitely holy. And praise God, Jesus has paid the full requirement of this broken law for his people. He's the the legal substitute for the lawbreaker who trusts in him. And and what does he do for love's sake? He, He imputes that perfect righteousness of his to you who are trusting in him. But make no mistake, he also imparts a righteousness by the Spirit. That's a progressive thing, isn't it? That's our sanctification. We are being made uh, by God's grace and God's power, by the Spirit, more and more holy as Jesus is holy. Let's just take a breather here because we all heard that there's some sort of riot of young people happening outside there and we're uh, asking for grace right now for the the children's ministers um think of think of the think of the wonder of your savior jesus did absolutely nothing for, forbidden by those 10 commandments jesus did everything required by those commandments. He fulfilled the law. And in his holiness, this king of yours then became the the, the perfect sacrifice that the law demands of all of God's people. So you could put it this way. Jesus came to live out God's law and then die for his people to cancel the law's condemnation. All of those sacrifices 
God required of his people in the tabernacle and then in the temple were simply signs pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, God's own son, our King Jesus. And what he's going to say to his people in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is that he came not only to impart his righteousness, but also a new heart that loves and increasingly lives out God's law for his glory. This is the part of the gospel that the modern church so often ignores. You say, well, I just want to look at God's law the way Jesus does. Well, then hear the words of Christ in Psalm 119. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. That's why God says to his people over and over again in Deuteronomy, he said, observe and obey all these words which I command you that it may go well with you. God's law, in other words, always leads God's people into his best. And so the king says to his people, look at verse 19 of Matthew 5, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so here is Jesus beginning to teach the law rightly with the Pharisees in mind. You know the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you know that over and over again, Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said. I know you heard this. I know you've been taught this, but I say to you, It's a corrective for people who misunderstand the relationship God's people are to have with his law. Jesus will explain that these are matters of the heart. These are new covenant matters, matters for people who have been given a new heart that loves God. The law is not and never was just appearances or technicalities. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't try to write this down. You will hurt yourselves. Um, (laughs) just, Just listen to this. He says, there is nothing more fatal than to regard holiness and sanctification as experiences to be received. No. Holiness means being righteous. And being righteous means keeping the law. Grace is that which brings me to love God. And if I love God, I long to keep. His commandments. So these these simple people, I mean that in the best sense, these just kind of average um, Abrams and Annas of, of Jesus' day gathered around the king as they are in Galilee would have looked at the Pharisees as the most religious people on the planet. And it seems like Jesus is kind of, this is a shot across the bow, isn't it? Jesus seems to be singling out those who pretend to love God and pretend to love his ways. In fact, put on quite a show, all the while hiding a corrupt heart. In fact, Jesus will say to them, you you all are like whitewashed tombs, all pretty on the outside, corrupt, rotten on the inside. And that's not the gospel, is it? 
simply looking religious, sounding religious to others? Is that, is that the testimony God's people are? Is that how God's name is going to be vindicated in the world today? Bunch of posers? No. Jesus says, for I say to you, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What, what, what's he getting at here? Because his first listeners would have thought, well, wait a minute. How could your righteousness possibly excel that of the scribes and Pharisees? These are the professional religious people. I mean, these are the hyper-religious people. I mean, just look at them. They all look like they need another Rolaids. There's no joy in life. They're, just, they're too busy trying to figure out what rules everybody else is breaking, right? Here, here's the encouragement. The person who trusts in the work of Christ, who's been given the new heart that loves God, and loves his law and seeks to live it out however imperfectly already has a righteousness that exceeds that of the most fake religious person on the planet. Why? Because it ain't fake. Because it's real. The kingdom of heaven is simply the reign of God in the hearts and minds of his people. Men and women who are loyal to the king. And the kingdom of God is growing through the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is for people who know they're sinners. Remember the Beatitudes? Who mourn their sinfulness. Who, who hunger for a righteousness they don't have. And they find that in the king. And they are satisfied in him. And they're blessed. And for love's sake, they now seek to function as salt and light. What's salt and light? It's God's people living out God's nature for the glory of God. What does all this have to do with prophecy? I thought prophecy was about trying to figure out who the Antichrist was. Well, here's prophecy. God says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel way, the narrow way that leads to life. Father, we thank you for the work of our Savior, Jesus, who is our shelter from judgment as lawbreakers, every one of us. And Lord is pleased to clothe us in our righteousness that he then enables us to live out. And I pray, Lord God, that you would protect us as a congregation of your people from falling off the narrow way on either side. We certainly don't want to be legalistic and phony. 
forgive us that tendency. And Lord, we certainly don't want to be as those who think your law is somehow disregarded. It's your very nature. And we're your children. And what a blessing it is to have your nature imparted to us. Help us to live as your kids in this community so that your name is sanctified. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.